BakerBots LLP provides podcasts for educational purposes only. They are not legal advice. This communication may constitute attorney advertising. Welcome to the Environmental Evolutions Podcast, where we explore the changing landscape of environmental law and policy. I'm your host, Megan Burge, coming to you from Washington, D.C. Today, I'm pleased to welcome back Alexander Dunn and introduce you to another partner, Josh Frank. We're going to talk about recent developments related to PFAS and consumer products and food packaging. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Megan. It's great to be here. Great to be with you, Megan. So for anyone who hasn't listened to our first two PFAS episodes, I highly recommend checking them out. But Alex, just to give us a very quick reminder, exactly what are PFAS and why would we be concerned about them in foods and cosmetics packaging? Well, it's a really interesting take to look at them in these particular products, Megan. So as we've talked in the prior episodes, PFAS are a family of chemicals. And these substances have been made since the 1940s, and they've changed a lot in their chemistry. But they have water-repellent, grease-resistant, heat-resistant, and non-stick properties. So they've been used in things like carpeting, furniture, firefighting foams, and, as we're talking today, in a lot of products like the pizza box that you might carry on your lap. And it's what has, for a long time, kept that grease from coming through onto your shorts while you're driving home with that hot pizza pie. I very much appreciate that. Exactly. Why are we hearing so much about them now? Well, it seems that every week there's a study that is coming out that is giving more and more information about where these PFAS are. And because the science of PFAS is still evolving, we're still learning what does exposure to PFAS through water, through soil, through the air, through perhaps the wrapper around your sandwich. How does that affect the human body? And all of that is still coming out. But the EPA and other scientific bodies have started to put out the message that PFAS are something that we should be concerned about as a public. And it's leading to a lot of litigation and attention. We're watching federal agencies and states dive into the area of PFAS and particularly around consumer products. So it sounds like there's a lot going on in this space that companies should be thinking about. So let's go over to Josh. Let's talk a little bit more about these lawsuits. So you might have seen lately in the news that there have been a spate of PFAS lawsuits in recent weeks, including class actions that have been brought against some very big names, McDonald's, Burger King. L'Oreal, and CoverGirl, just to name a few. So most of these lawsuits have been brought in just the last two months, and some have stemmed directly from a March 24th Consumer Reports article about PFAS and food packaging. In that article, the Consumer Reports tested over 100 food packaging products from restaurant and grocery chains and found that PFAS, or likely PFAS, was in bowls, bags, plates, and wrappers for all 24 retailers they studied. What are the plaintiffs alleging in these cases? For the consumer products, the cases allege that there's PFAS in the products themselves that can be transferred from the products onto the skin and then into the body. For the food packaging, the cases allege that there was PFAS in the food packaging itself that is then leached into the food that people consume. Oh, that's interesting. So 
How do these consumer product suits differ from those earlier cases? The early cases were primarily against manufacturers of PFAS itself or manufacturers of firefighting foams containing PFAS, and they related to PFAS in the environment. So those suits were brought against facilities where PFAS or firefighting foams were manufactured, used, or released. And in particular, most of those cases have been for medical monitoring or personal injury, as well as the cost of remediating or treating water or soil that uh, were affected by PFAS or for diminished property value. Um, Other companies and industries that use PFAS in their products have also been targeted as well. But previously, those cases have related to PFAS-containing materials that escaped into the environment from a facility and that impacted nearby residents or, or water supplies. So here, this round of consumer products cases is something totally different. They don't allege personal injury or environmental injury directly. Rather, they argue that the companies have misled consumers through marketing and advertising and have unjustly profited as a result. So basically, they claim that consumers would not have purchased the products if they'd known they contained PFAS or would have paid a lower price for the products. So importantly, this is the plaintiff's creative way of avoiding the proof of causation that might be required in other types of suits, such as those related to personal injuries, where it might be very difficult to prove that somebody's personal injury was caused by PFAS. Okay, so what I'm hearing you say is that the complaints in these suits are suggesting that the consumers were deceived by the marketing of a product to think that the product they were buying was free of PFAS. Exactly. They allege that the product marketing and packaging gave no indication that the products contained PFAS, or in some instances, specifically state that there are no harmful chemicals in the products. So the claims sound different than the personal injury cases. Here, for example, the cases allege breach of implied warranties, saying that the product was not fit for its ordinary purpose. These cases have all been brought as class actions, where the named plaintiffs seek to represent much broader groups of people. So the class sought to be represented might be all consumers in a state that purchased a certain mascara or a certain food product, or in many of these cases, they seek a class of all consumers of those products nationally. So really big classes. Josh, you just said a lot of things that are very scary if you're an in-house counsel. How do you end up the subject of one of these suits? So primarily, these suits relate to what companies have said in their marketing materials because they deal with alleged unfair trade practices and false advertising. So if you look at the complaints in these cases, each of them goes through the company's marketing materials or packaging to identify what the plaintiffs believe to be false information. In many recent cases, we see plaintiffs point to advertising relating to safety. For the food products in particular, the plaintiffs highlight marketing materials about food safety throughout the entire food supply chain or the quality of food. And there's also an emphasis on marketing that promotes sustainability, all of which the plaintiffs claim is misleading for products that contain PFAS. So for the cosmetics cases, they point to advertising or marketing with the words pure, clean, and natural, or statements that the products are kind to the planet. And sometimes they just point to the ingredient list and point out that there's no reference to PFAS at all. And if you look at the complaints again, beyond the descriptive language, they put pictures of the products that they allege also are deceptive. So those might be pictures of somebody using a product directly on their skin or spraying something on their face, or a picture of a food product on a piece of food packaging that makes the food look tasty and safe. Well, and you all can't see this, but Josh has a stack of these complaints in the chair next to him, and it's several inches high. 
It's amazing that the claimants here are going through websites, packages, and taking screenshots and just documenting everything the companies have been saying publicly. And this is really an important moment for companies to sort of mark, as you asked, Megan, how do you end up in this situation? We've been talking in past episodes about greenwashing and environmental claims and safety claims. And this is a really tricky area for companies. It's a really good reminder right now for companies to look at what their marketing teams want to say about their products and make sure that the legal team is involved in taking a look at that. You know, really be aware of not only what you're saying to the public, but also chemicals in your supply chain. Some of the cases involve ingredients in products, which the company may be more focused on the actual product they're putting out there than all of the ingredients that make it up. And so supply chain stewardship is really important at this time. And reviewing your external statements and marketing claims are just so important in this environment. Alex, you raise an excellent point because previously we talked about greenwashing in the context of lawsuits around um, statements for climate change. But really, that that model of suit can be used by plaintiffs in a lot of different contexts. And now we're seeing it move over to PFAS, which is another really hot topic in the growing area of environmental law. I think one thing that's interesting about these complaints is that they don't focus specifically on the products themselves. They look at the overall things that the companies are saying and the marketing campaigns that talk about food safety generally or product safety generally and product stewardship. Uh, So there's a lot to look at for the companies in terms of how their statements can be used against them in a litigation like this. Well, and these cases seem to be coming from a study a week, so to speak. So Josh mentioned the Consumer Reports article, which studied the food packaging items. It seems like where there's a study, lawsuits follow. And there are a lot of ongoing studies right now. So you can just bet that whenever these studies are published, there's going to be more litigation. Exactly. And we're talking about the consumer products trends. But again, this could lead to personal injury claims as EPA and other agencies land more information about the impacts of PFAS on the human body. We may see a new wave of more precise personal injury claims. And Megan, you mentioned before, We may see also environmental enforcement cases by EPA if there were any releases to the environment, to the water, to the air during the manufacturing of these products. Let's step back a little bit. How does this intersect with what we've been seeing at the agencies? The federal agencies are moving into this space. The Food and Drug Administration has certainly been heavily involved with PFAS and consumer products that fall under its jurisdiction. EPA and FDA have issued letters to manufacturers and distributors and users of plastic containers to remind them that possible PFAS releases are managed by some agency regulations. That's interesting. So outside the context of existing regulations and frameworks, what steps has the FDA taken to directly address PFAS? Well, for example, the FDA has been working to phase out various PFAS compounds for a while. In 2016, the FDA revoked regulations that allowed certain longer chemical PFAS compounds to be used in food packaging. And by the end of the year, 2016, they had been phased out. 
In 2020, for example, there was a voluntary phase-out agreement with other manufacturers to take certain shorter chemical PFAS compounds out of the supply chain. And this February, the FDA posted an update on various phase-out plans showing that at least one manufacturer has permanently ceased all sales of food contact substances that may contain PFAS compounds. Well, just to make sure we cover all of the bases here, let's move on to talk about the states. We called them the Wild West in terms of dealing with PFAS in an earlier episode. Where are we at the state level? Megan, that's a great question because states are always at the forward edge of protecting the people within their borders and trying to make sure they're not exposed to anything that could harm them. That makes sense. It sure does. And so state legislatures are super active in this space. They are focused on not only setting exposure levels for drinking water, but also phasing out with the sale of products within certain states of PFAS-containing products. So, for example, the state of Washington has banned PFAS in four types of food packaging only after the state confirmed that there were alternatives available, and there are. And that ban goes into effect next February 2023. California has banned intentionally added PFAS starting in January 2023. And in California, paper food packaging is going to have to have less than 100 parts per million of this compound. Alex, can you put that in perspective? When we say things like 100 parts per per million, what does that mean? Well, we're talking about very, very low levels. I mean, these are microscopic levels, really hard to trace. So I'm going to have pizza grease on my pants is what I'm hearing. (laughs) Well, According to the state of Washington, there are alternatives. So that's what we really need to see is reformulation of products, right? So, you know, you can outright ban, but the Washington legislation is interesting because it sort of shows that there's a two-step. Before you can ban something, you have to know that there's an alternative. And nobody does want grease on their pants. <laughs> well, that is, that is really interesting. So what types of legislation are we seeing get traction in state houses? Well, again, it's this focus on consumer packaging. And for example, in Hawaii, we're very close to seeing a bill passed that would ban the manufacture, sale, or distribution for wraps, liners, plates, food boats, pizza boxes, and even the firefighting foams that we've talked about before containing PFAS. I have to imagine there's challenges to implementing these laws. Well, from a practical standpoint, we talked about just a moment ago the issue of alternatives. You know, are alternatives available to the consumer? And frankly, how are they going to change the cost of these products for the purchasers? And there are thousands of PFAS. And testing methods really can only identify a couple of dozen of them. So because they're widespread, you know, it's chasing all different types of PFAS. There are over 600 PFAS in commerce today. So You know, when we talk about intentionally added PFAS, that's one way to go at it. And that's what California is doing. As opposed to saying no PFAS, they're saying no intentionally added PFAS. So they're kind of shifting the burden. Up the chain. Exactly. Supply chain, which we talked about before. And intentional is really in the eye of the beholder. If you're putting a product on the market and it has PFAS in it, you should be aware. In some ways, that brings us Full circle back to you, Josh, about what we talked about at the top of the podcast. And as Alex noted, for companies that are concerned that their products contain PFAS or may contain PFAS, what's at stake for companies that are subject to these lawsuits? Primarily, the suits seek damages. And they claim that the companies profited from these deceptive practices and should disgorge the profits that they've made as a result. 
And that's big news. Some of these cases reach back years in time, so the damages they are seeking will be very high. Additionally, the cases often ask the court to order injunctive relief. So they ask the court to issue orders ordering the companies to cease the deceptive conduct, such as stopping the advertising, or to require the companies to inform consumers about PFAS and the dangers of PFAS, or even to remove PFAS from their packaging. So the cases seek what might be very high damages and very significant injunctive relief. Yeah, that's interesting because it's almost a different way of getting at the regulatory outcomes that Alex was discussing. For sure. It's regulation by litigation. Just what everyone always loves to hear. So in terms of what you both see in the future of PFAS, and Alex, I feel like I ask you this every episode. I mean, we've talked snow globes, magic eight balls, and crystal balls. This time, because we're talking about consumer packages, I'm going to go with fortune cookies. Okay. If I were to unwrap the plastic from my fortune cookie, what would the fortune read for this subject? Beware road bumps ahead. Cryptic, but would fit in a fortune cookie. That's fair. It would. But in all seriousness, I really think for companies to have their eyes up on the future and the supply chain investigation is so important. There are a number of ways companies can really take ownership over everything that is going into the product that they're putting out on the market. And this is the time to do it before they receive one of these complaints. That's really good advice, Alex. All right, Josh, what's in your fortune cookie? May contain PFAS. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, in terms of what I expect is going to happen, I think we're at the tip of the spear in terms of the number of consumer product cases that we're going to see. And that's particularly the case if some of the existing cases yield high-dollar settlements or if the courts certify classes or if they reject some of the defenses. So really, any company that's used PFAS in its products or packaging really should be undertaking an internal evaluation of the risks, as well as a review of the marketing materials that might be used against them in the litigation. Josh, we could do a whole other podcast on what are some of the key strategy items that, you know, counsel need to think about in terms of how to defeat or frustrate this strategy. But we'll just put a pin in that for another time. Lots to talk about there. You'll just have to have me back. (laughs) And with that, we're at the end of our time together today. Thank you both Alex and Josh for joining me. It's been fun, Megan. I've had a great time. This 100% is not going to be the last episode on PFAS, but it is the end of today's episode. For listeners, Alex and Josh have agreed to share their case tracking chart through our episode notes. You also can find their contact information if you have further questions. With that, I'm Megan Birch. Thank you for spending time with me. Thank you for listening to this BakerBots podcast. For more information on BakerBots practices, please visit us at bakerbots.com. For over 180 years, through 13 offices in nine countries, BakerBots has the experience, knowledge, and people to solve our clients' most significant legal issues. This presentation is provided by BakerBots LLP for educational and informational purposes only. It is not legal advice. Under the rules of certain jurisdictions, this communication may constitute attorney advertising.